listening to Think Brazos, a podcast all about housing affordability and financial stability for families in Brazos County. If 2020 wasn't crazy enough already, four out of seven of the College Station City Council seats will be decided this November. We interviewed the two candidates for place four, which, like all the other College Station positions, is an at-large race. In this episode, Charles Coates interviews Joe Guerra, who is running for College Station City Council Place 4, to discuss his background and ideas for College Station. We'll leave a link in the show notes for his opponent, Elizabeth Kuna's interview. So this is Think Brazos, a new podcast brought to you by Bryan College Station Habitat for Humanity. So we're joined by Joe Guerra, who's a candidate for the Place 4 City Council race coming up here in November. So first off, Mr. Guerra, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself personally? I believe we've met once, but I wanted to get a little more background for our listeners as far as who you are and, and why you're running. Sure. My name's Joe Guerra, born and raised in Corpus Christi, Texas. I'm a first-generation Texan. We've been in College Station for over 12 years I'm a city planner, transportation planner by trade. I have almost, uh, well, actually, I have more than 30 years of city planning, transportation planning, engineering, and design experience. 10 years with TxDOT, five years with the city of College Station, and the rest in the private sector. Okay. So my, my education background, I have a master's degree in public administration from Texas A&M, Corpus Christi. I have a uh, bachelor's degree in political science and public policy from Texas A&M Corpus Christi. And I have an associate degree in architectural technology from Del Mar College, also in Corpus Christi. So I got all my education at Corpus Christi. Great. Well, we're pleased to have you on the show. And we wanted to give you an opportunity to just speak for a minute about why it is that you decided to run for this position for place four of the College Station City Council and why you feel that you're the best choice. Here for this vote. I come from a family of public service. We give back to our community. My dad was elected to a citywide position in a small town outside of Corpus Christi. He was the first Latino to be elected citywide. It was for the utility commission. He also served on the planning and zoning commission for that small town. I also have an uncle who was elected for city council in that small town and a cousin who ran for school board. And sat on the school board there for two terms. My father was also very active in civic and religious organizations in that small town. So so my family has a history of giving back to the community. So that's one of the reasons I wanted to run for city council, to give back to uh, the community. I would also like to say that I'm actively involved in the community. I'm president of the Welbush Lions Club. I'm a member of the Brian College Station Hispanic Forum, and I sat on the uh, scholarship committee. And I also uh, sat on the HOA board for Castlegate. I'm currently on the Planning and Zoning Commission, and I'm also on the Comprehensive Plan Evaluation Committee. And so those are some of the reasons that I wanted to run. Other reasons were I wanted to serve as a role model for minorities. I wanted them to see if if I can get elected to a citywide position that might encourage more minority participation. So I felt that my background, my education would be very valuable to uh, the city of College Station. So those are the reasons why I'm running. 
Okay. Yeah. Wow. So you've got quite a bit of experience that you bring to the table. I asked the same question to your opponent last week about the planning and zoning committee. For our listeners, those who may not know a whole lot about how this committee operates, what is the planning and zoning committee that you said you sit on currently? So it's an advisory committee. So rezoning applications come before the planning and zoning commissions. And the applicant makes their case on whether they want to rezone a piece of property. If it meets a comprehensive plan, then we'll vote on a recommendation to city council. So zoning ordinances, zoning applications come before us. Platting applications also come before us. This is where you subdivide property. And so there are criteria that the applicant has to meet. And if it meets those criteria, then it gets approved and the process stops there. It doesn't have to go to city council. That same applicant might come in with a variance to the planning process. And and it could be anything from negotiating with roadway. So the dedication to the city might vary and might not meet the standard criteria. So that's an example of a variance that the applicant might ask for. So platting and rezoning applications come before planning and zoning. Changes to ordinances also come before planning and zoning commission and uh, staff will make their presentation. We'll debate it and then we'll decide whether or not we want to recommend approval or denial to city council with city council having the last say on their specific ordinances. Okay, well, thank you for that. And I'm sure you've done a lot for this community. So we appreciate that. Just to kind of zoom out for a minute now, for our listeners, we are sitting in what a lot of people would call the post-COVID period. Initially, when we decided to do this project, one of the things I was going to ask you because of your background was about traffic, because over and over, it seemed that this was a hot button issue for the community, but it may be traffic, it may be something else, but can you tell me what you feel is the biggest issue facing this community, College Station, today, again, post-COVID, and then what do you intend to do about that if elected to this position on the city council? So I agree with you. Transportation probably would have been one of the bigger issues pre-COVID. Post-COVID, we're seeing an impact to businesses, specifically uh, restaurants. And so when City Council reviews new ordinances, rezoning applications, or how to set up the budget, we have to take that in mind because the city is taking a hit with regards to sales tax. So those revenues are not going to be there. So how do we help businesses post-COVID? Even before COVID, the uh, Planning Zoning Commission has a retreat where we plan our plan of work, what we're going to look at for the fiscal year. Before COVID-19, we had a retreat. This was my first year on Planning Zoning Commission. And I set out an initiative. I said, as soon as we complete our comprehensive plan, we need to come up with a redevelopment plan for Post Oak Mall. We would need to collaborate with the property owners to see what we could do about saving that property. Because that property brings a lot of revenue to the city, uh, both sales tax and property taxes. And so what we were seeing nationwide was these suburban malls going by the wayside because of Amazon, because of online retail. We were seeing more and more retail going by the wayside. So I knew that we we needed to step up and try to come up with a plan to redevelop this property. And so post-COVID, 
this issue has accelerated because Post Oak Mall is taking a big hit because of COVID-19. So now more than ever, we need to approach these people, collaborate, and come up with a redevelopment plan. Coincidentally, my ideas have been incorporated in the comprehensive planning process. We're currently updating our comprehensive plan. Uh, staff has come up with some scenarios on redevelopment areas within the city. And the number one redevelopment area that we're looking at is Post Oak Mall. And so those are some of the issues that have come out of the impacts from COVID-19. I'd like to, for a minute, switch to you know a topic that I alluded to at the beginning, really affordable housing and College Station and that sort of thing. I'm sure you're aware of this, that I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but anecdotally, in terms of the people that Habitat serves, what we've noticed is that it does seem like a fair proportion of the employees at, say, Texas A&M, big employer, in and around College Station cannot afford to live in the city, to live near where they work. Many of them live on the outskirts or they live in Bryan. Let me ask you, do you feel that College Station does have an affordable housing problem, as some have said, and what, if anything, should we do about it? So we're unique to other cities because this is a college town. And so when developers and builders build what I call starter homes, it should be affordable housing. What we're seeing is investors actually buying those houses and then renting them out. And so because investors are buying those houses, young families that want to buy specifically to live, to be owner-occupied, historically have found less and less housing. And so when a developer or builder comes in with those starter home subdivisions or applications before us, we applaud them. But I also ask, are you going to market these to investors or are you going to market these to uh, young families who are looking for starter homes? In other communities, they don't have that problem because they're not a college town. But we are, and we see a lot of investors affecting the market. The other thing that we saw also is when it comes to being able to pay your property taxes, that is also included in the cost of housing. And so we were seeing investors come in, and we've actually lost a couple of African-American community, the Passler area north of Lincoln, and we almost lost the McCulloch subdivision, which is also a predominantly minority subdivision. What we are seeing is investors will come in and pay for a piece of property with a house on it above market rate, and then that becomes a comparable. And so our uh, tax appraisal district We'll use that to calculate your property value. And so everyone else's property value goes up because of that comp. Their property taxes go up and it's less affordable. They're having trouble paying their taxes. And so that creates a domino effect. They're having trouble paying their property taxes. So their homes are no longer affordable or their properties are no longer affordable. And then an investor will come in and offer, buy them out. And so that becomes a comp again. And so that keeps on raising your property value. And then you're, you no longer, or these people no longer were able to afford to live in that subdivision. And so we saw that happen with Passler. We were seeing that happen with McCulloch subdivision. That that neighborhood came before city council and asked for an overlay. And the overlay, it was a conservation overlay. And the overlay would prohibit two-story houses. And so that immediately stopped the stealth dorm uh, houses that were being built. That neighborhood stabilized 
And so the property values stabilized and these people were able to stay in their affordable subdivision and pay their property taxes. So those are some of the variables that we're seeing within the city college station because this is a college town and we have people that will not be owner-occupied residents, but investors. And that drives up the price of houses. So we're encouraging the development and the building of starter homes. But we need to be very aware that the market and investors might take advantage of that. And so it's a revolving cycle. Hopefully, at some point, the market will take over and there'll be enough starter homes out there where it'll outpace investors. So that's one strategy is to promote starter homes for young families. And we're in that process of designating which areas we should have starter homes within the comprehensive planning process that we're undertaking currently. Now, let me get a follow-up of something you were alluding to here, and it is owner-occupied displacement in some of those neighborhoods, such as McCullough, and the other one that you mentioned as well, and likely other areas of the city where there are relatively affordable subdivisions where people are living in their homes. A lot of them would like to stay there, but there's this displacement factor. Have you, has the planning and zoning given any consideration or thought to the use of things such as ADUs, accessory dwelling units, as another tool in your toolbox to be able to essentially allow owners to be able to stay in their home by being able to gain income by renting to students on their own land. Are you following me with that? I believe, and this is before my time on planning and zoning, the city did look at auxiliary dwelling units. I think that the problem in these older subdivisions they were developed to be single family housing. And so you have a certain square footage per lot. And so whether or not you can actually place an auxiliary dwelling unit in that square footage is one issue. The other issue is that, like I said, these neighborhoods or these subdivisions were built to be single family neighborhoods where traditionally folks only had at the most two cars per family. And so when you start converting parts or all of it to investment housing so that you could rent to students. Then you have at a minimum of four cars. And then these students have their boyfriend or girlfriend come over and stay a while. Potentially you get eight cars and it spills out to the street. And so more cars parked on the street are first responders have a hard time traversing if there's an emergency through these streets. And so Because of that, with the push from some of these single-family neighborhoods, they're promoting having students rent duplexes, townhomes, and in apartment complexes because those type of housings have built-in facilities to take care of parking issues. And so there are different train of thoughts. If I was to look at an auxiliary unit as part of a house, be more looking at bring in your mother-in-law or father-in-law or or your grandparents. And actually, I've been thinking about this too because my wife's parents are getting up there in age and they live in Corpus Christi. And uh, it's a four-hour drive. We go back and forth just in case there's an emergency. But having them next to me, there would be some advantages to that. My current single-family dwelling unit that I live in, there would be no room for me to put that structure in this square footage uh, so I would have to, you know, 
buy another lot or, buy, or, or have another house built if I wanted to go mm. in that direction. And so these are the issues that come up when, when we talk about this type of arrangement. Um, just to uh, switch to one more topic that I have, and then we'll open it up to some other things you may want to talk about. This is the same issue that I brought up to your opponent last week when I spoke with her, and it has to do with a potential ordinance that is getting a lot of focus from the community lately. I believe it's called the Rue. I forget what that stands for, but it has to do with restricting occupancy in a particular property to no more than two unrelated. I'm aware that very recently the city came back and said, we're going to take another look at it as far as staff. So it's kind of on the table, but they may be discussing how to maybe revise some of the language on how they enforce it and that sort of thing. But I'd like to hear a little bit more about this potential ordinance as far as you understand it. And do you support it or support the concept or are you against it? So actually, we, we talked about some of those same issues earlier. As I understand it, the two unrelated ordinance would be part of a early have for a conservation overlay. And so if the if city council were to pass this, it would not be citywide. You wouldn't have to go, uh, if you were an investor, you wouldn't have to go and kick out two of your tenants because that's not how the, the ordinance works. It's a bottom-up approach, not a top-down approach. So it would be up to the neighborhood if they wanted that overlay. So if city council were to pass this, it would just be a tool that if a neighborhood wanted to band together, they would have to meet certain criteria. Part of that criteria is to gather signatures, a petition, and they would have to meet, and different numbers have been thrown around, 50 plus 1, 50%, 58%. So they would need those numbers as far as petitions to go before planning and zoning and city council. Also, they would have to conduct various public meetings in order to make sure everybody in that neighborhood understood was being asked uh, how it would work. And so that's how the ordinance would work. Now, for the investment properties that are already on the ground, have been built, those who get grandfathered. And so staff is also looking to how that grandfathering would work. And so right away, I can tell you that it's not going to affect the whole city. It's neighborhood-driven, which means it's not a top-down approach, it's a bottom-up approach. And then anything that's in place is going to be grandfathered. Also, this is only for single-family subdivisions. It does not affect duplexes. It does not affect townhomes. And it does not affect multifamily. And so there will be housing options for anybody that wants to rent. The other point I wanted to make is Brian has done that. They have 41 overlays. So Brian has already done that. The difference between the city college station and what Brian did was actually a top-down approach. There was no neighborhood meetings. There was no petition process. It was city council actually voting for that overlay in that specific area, and then it would take into effect. But this is a different approach. And so that's one point I wanted to make. The other point I wanted to make is that people have talked about social economic impacts. And so I, I mentioned this earlier, there are social economic impacts to neighborhoods where investment property has come in. They bought property at higher than normal market value and then they become cops. 
And then this, the people that actually live in that subdivision, because these investment properties become cops and the appraisal district increases their property value, which increases their property taxes, they can no longer stay there. It's no longer affordable. This would be one avenue they could take is this kind of overlay. And so for the overlay that McCulloch used and it was effective was to prohibit two-story houses. But there are other neighborhoods where you have two-story houses. And so an overlay that would prohibit three-story houses, but it would not make a difference because then you can build two-story houses. And so you still have your stealth dorms being built. And so this would be one option to save that neighborhood so that it stays affordable and your property taxes won't increase and you can stay where you're at currently. So this is one option that a neighborhood would have. And I speak to it as an option because it's an option. Like I said, it's not something the city will enact from the top down. As soon as they enact this, it's not going to be citywide. And you as an investment owner, you don't have to go in and kick out two of your tenants if you have four unrelated in your house. And then again, I mentioned just going to be grandfathering. Staff made a presentation to PNZ and when staff made that presentation, my comments was, one, we need to have grandfathering. So you need to tie that language down to make sure we have grandfathering and the investors that have their houses currently in place and are renting them can stay there. I also mentioned how we define a family should be looked at because how we define a family could determine how many people can stay in that house. Because if you have a family of four and you can bring in one more person and rent a room out to them. You're still within the parameters. And so conceptually, I'm okay with this proposal, but there's still a lot of work the city staff has to do with regards to grandfathering, with regards to how to define a family. And the reason I'm okay with it is because it's neighborhood driven. It's a bottom-up approach and it's up to the neighborhood whether or not they want to do this or not. And then finally, conservation overlays currently in place might not take care of all the potential issues that might come up with a certain neighborhood where there won't be in the toolbox that would help a subdivision like McCullough. So, so those are my thoughts on this issue. Is there anything else that you would like to tell them about you, um, maybe how they can help your campaign or anything else that you'd like to say? Sure. Because I am a transportation planner and we didn't touch on transportation, uh, I wanted to talk about these two items. Currently, there's an option that Williamson County and Hayes County are using, they are upping their match with every TxDOT project. Whether TxDOT uses federal funds or state funds, there has to be a match from the city if it's within the city limits. I believe it's 20% if it's federal funding and 10% if it's state funding. And what Williamson County and Hayes County are doing is they're upping that match so they can leverage TxDOT to build their projects instead of TxDOT building projects in Dallas or in Corpus. So, so I want to do something like that here, except Ace County and Williamson County are floating bonds and taxing their citizens. I don't want to do that. What I want to do is create TIFs, tax increment financing districts, where you capture the added value that development brings. And so the added value with regards to tax revenue stays within that district. And you can use that for infrastructure. And so we would up our match to leverage our projects and go negotiate with TxDOT 
we could also negotiate on how much TxDOT would pay us back. So that would be one option that I would like to pursue with regards to funding transportation projects. The other issue that we're going to see because the metro area is at or above 200,000 in population, the present transit district will lose federal funding. Now, once you reach 200,000, the feds say you got enough population that you can get your local people to fund your operation. So we're going to have to see whether or not the citizens of both Bryan and College Station want to do that. And if they do, in my opinion, we would have more leverage with regards to Brazos Transit District, where we could ask for more routes, for more bus stops. And I've seen Metro in Houston actually do transportation projects where they actually improve the roadway corridor within a transit route. So those are two transportation issues that we will see coming up. And I just wanted to mention that. With regards to more information, with regards to my campaign, how to volunteer, options for uh, contributions, you can go to www.jgarraforcouncil.com. And I wanted to thank the Bryan College Station Habitat for Humanity for having me on this podcast. They do terrific work, outstanding work. Affordable housing is very important to both cities. Well, Mr. Guerra, we really appreciate your time today. For everyone listening, this has been Joe Guerra, candidate for place four of the College Station elections coming up in November. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Think Brasses. Be sure to check out our other interviews linked in the show notes. And when you're at the ballot box this November, just remember, think local, think Brazos.